go ahead and do eschatology. Which we won't all agree upon. But one, one of the good things is... One of the good things is we'll be able to discuss it. We'll, we'll, we'll go through this and then we can discuss. The one thing I do ask is... We're going through this. Let's discuss what we talk about. Let's not all of a sudden jump into the, the, the horse, horsemen in, in Revelation and, and anything about a rapture unless it's in the text. We're not sure right now. Right? Yeah, we, we, we discussed what's, yeah, we, we, we discuss what's in the text. And that's, that's, that's the goal. So let me start like this. Obviously, there's a ton of information you can get on eschatology, whether good or bad. You can see, you can find it all over the place. So it made it, for me, a hard decision on where to start. Where do I start? It's so broad. There's so much. And there's some people that use texts that are very, very clearly even talking about the first coming of Christ. And they, they apply it to the second coming of Christ. So, you got that as well. And there's other texts that only deal with the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of Israel, and people use that for the destruction of the whole world. So, you have that as well. And you have everything in between, right? You have, you have views from... That's why we have books, three views of the millennium, and four views on this, because there's so much out there. So, we're trying to... I'm going to try to narrow it down, if I can, and make it simple. Make eschatology simple. Are we going to talk through, as you read, like the, the three different views? No. Or, unless I, we might. But what I'm, we're not even at the millennium, so we're not there yet. Okay. We can talk, like I said, once we get to that text, we can talk through that stuff. Okay. Um, are, you, are, you, are you planning on yeah, we're just going. We're going. What we're going to do? We're going right now. I start. I picked that we're going to start at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and we'll go from there. Sweet. But before we start at Matthew 24, we need to pick up the context. So Matthew 23 and verse 29. Are you there, Zach? Uh, Matthew 23, 29. You said, yeah. Yep. Will you read from 29 to the end of the chapter? Yes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of, the right, of, of, of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. <clears throat> Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I want to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Alright, so let's pick up a few key things from this text here. This is before he goes to the Mount 
of olives. Um, first thing, they are filling up the measure of their fathers. Or filling up the cup of their sin as a nation. That's what they were doing. That's what Jesus said they're doing. You're, in uh, verse 32, fill ye up the measure of your fathers. That's what they were doing at that time. They were, as, a, as a nation, they are filling up that cup full of sin. Second thing, in verse 33, it says brood of vipers in yours. It's generations. But it says, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? He calls them a generation of vipers. And says all these things down at the end of the, the chapter, all these things in verse 36 shall come upon this generation. So he calls them a generation of vipers and he says all these things shall come upon this generation. And then the third thing we see in verse 38, he said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So they, they, this generation of vipers is filling up the cup of sin. Their cup of sin. And Jesus says all these things will, will come upon this generation. What are those things? He's talking about their destruction. Them filling up the cup and their house being left def desolate. Now do you look at verse uh, 1 in chapter 24. It says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came to Him for to show him the buildings of the temple. So you see the context. Jesus is speaking these words to the rulers at the temple. He was at the temple at that point. He was speaking to the rulers. And if you've ever read through Matthew 23, he doesn't, I don't think you can, any, any way, shape, or form say he was nice to them. He was very harsh with those rulers there. So and then in Matthew 24, he leaves the temple and... And we'll see, he goes to the Mount of Olives. So this just wasn't in passing that Jesus was saying this to the Pharisees and Sadducees. It wasn't just like he was walking down the road and, and calling them out. It was actually done at the temple. So he was making a public spectacle of these people, of the religious leaders that day. He was in front of everybody at the temple displaying their hypocrisy. It wasn't done in secret, but it was done in public for all to see. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. Then what does He do? In verse 1 of chapter 24, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. So He went out and departed from the temple. He, he spoke forth their hypocrisy in front of everybody. And He said, Your house will be left desolate. And then He departs from the temple. Now let's stop for a minute here. If we are ever to study eschatology correctly, we must first know the Old Testament. Why do I say that? Because when you get into eschatology in the New Testament, more often than not, they're pointing back to something that was already said in the Old Testament. Many of the things we'll be seeing in the New Testament about eschatology are simply quotations or references back to the Old Testament. So in other words, when you come across something about end times, we should think, is this quoted in the Old Testament somewhere? And why? If, it, if it's quoted in the Old Testament, why is it quoted in the Old Testament? Why, why, what's it, why, why is it important that they quoted from that chapter of that book 
in that verse. So let, let me show right here a, a few things. We have one actually glaring example right in front of us in Matthew 24. But let's look at a couple other ones. Look, look with me at Acts chapter 2. Verse 17. Jason, are you there? Yeah. Acts 2 17. Is it Acts? Yeah, Acts 2 17. Verse 21. Or 17 through 21. Acts is before Romans. Yeah. After John. Tell that to the device. <laughs> Acts 2, 17. 17 through 21, yeah. Alright. In the last days it shall be God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on the male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the Lord shall be saved. Let me turn back. You got it on your phone. Will you pull up Joel 2, verses 28 through 32? 2, 28. Yes. Through 32. Joel. 28 through what? 32. Promise the Spirit says, uh, It will come about after this that I will pour my Spirit out sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moons of blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, and as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. You, uh, this sound familiar? Sounds like that. Is. Now, and if you looked at, I did this on purpose, but verse 16 in Acts chapter 2, it says, But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. This is Peter preaching. And what does he do? He points back to the Old Covenant. He points back to Joel and says, This, what is happening right now, is that which was spoken of by Joel. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. In verse 13. It says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elijah which was to come. What's he talking about here? Turn back to Malachi chapter 4. Last book of the Old Covenant. Old Testament. Verse 5. 1 through 5. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now listen, when you read that, that, just that verse right there, does it sound like 
the, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. And it says, and they shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up. And it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Doesn't that sound like end of the world type language, right? What it, keep going. Verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the, st of the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servants, when I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Do you see that? Do you see that? Jesus says, if you will receive it, this is Elijah. He's talking about John the Baptist. He's talking about John the Baptist. He says, this is the Elijah which was to come. This is what Jesus was talking about. This Elijah that's spoken about in Malachi 4 that says, before I, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You see, this is a matter of biblical hermeneutics, if you all ever heard of that. There's a, there's, a, there's a hermeneutic, a biblical hermeneutic called the analogy of faith, which teaches us that Scripture interprets itself, Right? When, when we come to Scripture, when we, when we jump into these eschatological uh, viewpoints, we must remember Scripture interprets itself. When John, if, we, if and when, maybe we get to the book of Revelation, when John's quoting, when John's writing Revelation and saying this and that, he's point, he, he keeps pointing back to the, to the Old Testament. So we allow Scripture to interpret itself. I want you to notice something else in this. It's similar in both of these texts. And it's actually used by many to sell books. Now, you write a book about one of these and you're guaranteed to make some money off of it. It says in Joel, Behold the great, or before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it says in Malachi, Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Both of these things are said to happen before the great and terrible day of the Lord. What are those things? That John the Baptist would come and that Pentecost would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Both of these events, the coming of John the Baptist and, and Pentecost were events that were prophesied to take place before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now we won't be looking back, be looking at that day yet, what is the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I just wanted to give you a principle in interpreting our eschatology, in, in, in forming our eschatology. Now, if you will, go back to Matthew chapter 24. And I, I wanted to bring that out to show us something right here. Because I guarantee we've all read through this probably and didn't pick this up. Matthew 24. And Jesus went out, in verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came to Him, for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, 
There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Remember, Jesus just rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees at the temple. He just rebuked them right in front of everybody, publicly, in front of everybody. It wasn't done in a secret. It was done in front of everybody. And it was the religious leaders of the time that he did it to. And then what did he do? He departed from the temple. Let me ask you this. When you read this, is there a place in the Old Testament that you could think of when God departed from the temple? Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 11. It says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is east of the city. The glory of the Lord departed the temple, departed the city. And it says, And, and, and it stood upon the mountain which is east side of the city. You know what mountain that is? Mount Olive. God departed the temple and stood upon the mountain. And that mountain was Mount Olive. Why is that important? Because Jesus is doing the same thing right here. Jesus, after rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees in front of everybody at the temple, he departs the temple and he does never come back to it. He departs and he goes east and to the Mount of Olives. That's where he's at right now. That's why we call it the Olivet Discourse. Because he's standing on the Mount of Olives, he's actually sitting on the Mount of Olives, teaching. He just departed it. And also, this is such a clear picture of that. What was one of the main themes of Ezekiel? Does anybody know? It was the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. That's what Ezekiel, a lot of what Ezekiel was writing about was that Jerusalem was going to be sieged and the temple was going to be destroyed. Solomon's temple, the first temple. So in Ezekiel's day, God departs the temple and heads east to stand on Mount of Olives before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Then during the earthly ministry of Christ, he departs the temple and he heads east to the Mount of Olives before what? Matthew 24, 1. And two. Remember, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Look, look, Jesus, this is the temple. Look how great the temple is. And what does Jesus say to them? And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Talking about the temple. Not one stone left upon another. He's talking about the same thing. He did the same thing. He departs the temple, heads to the Mount of Olives, points back to the Mount of Olives, not one stone, or back to the temple, not one stone shall be left upon another. It's the same, the same thing. So it's very important, right? I said, we would read over that, we wouldn't think anything about Jesus departing the temple. But it's actually a picture of what happened in Ezekiel's day, and which should tell us the same thing, right? 
It's teaching us the same thing. God departs the temple, stands on the Mount of Olives, and destroys Jerusalem and the temple. His disciples pointed to the temple, and his disciples thought, as the Jews thought, that the temple was indestructible. They thought no, nothing could ever happen to it. The temple and its beauty and everything, it was indestructible. It would never fall down. They thought the temple would stand forever. Remember Jesus' words of destroying the temple and in three days he'll raise it up? Remember he got, he got mocked for that. Uh, this man said he, he, he destroyed the temple in three days raised it up. Even when he was hanging on the cross or headed to the cross, isn't this the man that said he'd destroy the temple and three days later he'd build it back up? He was mocked. Because first, they didn't understand what he was speaking about. He wasn't speaking about that temple. Second, because the Jewish thought was the temple was indestructible. How you build it? You can't tear the temple down. It's indestructible. It can't be torn down. And third, because they thought, and they said this, it took 46 years to build it, and you'll say you'll do it in three days, which showed that they did not know what he was talking about. And it, the, our text actually will say that, that they didn't understand what he was talking about because he was talking about the temple, which is his body. Let me ask you something. Was it the temple destroyed after this? After the Olivet Discourse? Oh my God. <laughs> it actually was. And it was destroyed within a generation. Yeah. And just look at verse 34. Of Matthew 24. Verily I say unto you, till this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. He was talking about the destruction of the temple. And he says, this generation shall not pass to all these things be fulfilled. Well, it's talking about a different generation, right? It's talking about the generation, you know, 2,000 years from now. Well, that first doesn't make any sense at all. Second, Jesus just said the exact same thing in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees. He said, this generation shall not pass to all these things be fulfilled. The same, same language. That generation that Jesus was speaking to, he says, will not pass until all these things are fulfilled. Every single stone of the temple to be tore down. Every single one of them. And how long is the generation? 40 years. Right around 40 years. So when was the temple destroyed? Does anybody know? I named my son after the guy that destroyed it. <laughs> So this is not really. 60 to 80 AD, somewhere around there? 70 AD. Yeah. But the, the siege of Jerusalem started in about 66, 67 AD, and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So within a, a generation. Listen to this. Josephus. Y'all heard of Josephus? He was a Pharisee. Not Bocephus. Not Bocephus. Was he a Pharisee? Yeah. He wasn't a believer. He was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He escaped the siege and wrote about it. He was a historian, a Jewish historian. He wrote about the siege on Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Listen to what he says about this. And now remember, he's not a believer. Caesar gave orders 
that they should not demolish the whole city and the temple, except Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the whole city and temple, except the three towers, Phasilus, Hippicus, and Merium, and a part of the western wall. But all the rest was laid so completely even with the ground by those who dug it up from the foundation that there was nothing left to make those who came thither believe that it had ever been inhabited. That's a Josephus ranch. They dug up the foundations of the temple and destroyed the whole temple. So much so that if you were to walk up there, you wouldn't even know anybody was ever there. There was ever a temple. Every single stone. Jesus prophesied. And it happened just as he said it would. Just as he said it would. And notice, in case you think it's some future temple, which I know many believe that oh, it's just some future temple, his disciples showed him the temple. His disciples said, Look, Jesus, the temple. And he said, do you not know that not one stone of that's going to be left upon another? That's the temple he's talking about. That's the temple that was going to be destroyed. Not some future temple, but that temple that was standing at that time was going to be destroyed. So, with all that said of those two verses there, what can we learn about this today? If you will, this application. What can we learn about this today? First, God keeps His Word. Second, that God's judgments are real. And third, we can rest in a sovereign God. We haven't gotten to this yet. But when Rome came in and destroyed the temple, Rome came in and destroyed the temple, it wasn't apart from the decree of God. It was by the decree of God. God decreed for that to happen. It was actually the hand of God in judgment. God said He was going to judge His people, and that's how He said He was going to judge His people, and He came and judged His people exactly how He said He was going to judge His people. This is actually what I believe to be the day of the Lord when He was to come in judgment over the people of Israel for rejecting His Son. And He came and destroyed the temple. There's no more sacrifices in Israel. Why is there no more sacrifices? Because that sacrifice, the one sacrifice has been made, Jesus Christ, right? You don't need to bring your sheep and your lamb and your doves and all this other stuff. It's all over. And God made sure of it in 70 AD when He got rid of the temple. Our God is sovereign and keeps His word. That's one of the things, this is, if there's anything at all that we should learn about eschatology, it should at least be that. Not that, oh, it's so cool and mystifying and all this stuff, but that our God is sovereign. And He said He's going to do something. He does exactly how He says He's going to do it. And He keeps His word. So the question I, for all of us here is how shall that apply to our lives today? Yes, there's no more temple. Yes, Jesus said, you know, I will destroy, the, the temple will be destroyed. And it was destroyed. But what does that all mean to us, right? It means first that we should trust in God. We should rest in God. 
assignment.